The reading this morning is from Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, let's begin reading verse 14, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired hands and went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed. So that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, And the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak, because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him, and falling on his knees before him, and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him 
and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Astonishing authority. We have noticed in the bulletin the title for this morning, Astonishing Authority. Ultimate authority, all legitimate authority, the foundation of all authority belongs to Jesus Christ. All. Emphasis on all. All other authority is derived or delegated authority. That's true for authority within a family, authority within the church, authority within, among civil affairs, even authority for an individual. In a fallen and sinful world, this is impossible apart from the grace of God for us to exercise the authority that is expected and demanded and required of us. But we do have some measure of individual authority and responsibility. There's authority within the family. Health and welfare and education. These, these are authoritative responsibilities that families possess to care for themselves. There's authority within the church, the ministry of the word of God, the ministry of the ordinance, church discipline. In fact, historically, these are the three requirements for a healthy church, for there to be authority with the preaching of the word, with the administration of the ordinance, and the exercise of church discipline. But not just authority among individuals and among families and among churches, but among the civil affairs or the government. God has given the government the ministry of the sword to execute justice, to punish evildoers, to protect the innocent. We may think of it this way. There are spheres of authority. And as a result of that, there's a differentiation of responsibility. Each area of each of our lives has its own responsibilities and its own authority. As creator and sustainer of the universe, Christ has the absolute right over all created things and all created beings. Ultimate authority belongs to Jesus Christ. All other authority, did I emphasize all? All other authority is derived and delegated authority. Christ has an all-embracing authority in heaven and on earth. The ultimate authority that Christ has over us as the pinnacle of his creation is absolute and final. And even more so as Christians, we believe that this almighty God has spoken to us in and through Jesus Christ who has ultimate authority. But not only did God authoritatively speak the world into existence in the beginning, but it's his powerful authoritative word that continues to uphold all things as they exist. 
God's authority, the rightful rule and reign of God, confronts us in and through Jesus Christ, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit reigns over all things from eternity to eternity. He is the ultimate authority. The life of churches, the life of nations, the existence of civilization itself and every individual human being, you and me, our lives revolve around the inescapable reality of the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. And it is an astonishing authority. He himself said it this way, all Authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And where his authority has been rejected, chaos and destruction have inevitably followed. This is true in every individual that rejects the authority of Christ. This is true in every family that rejects the authority of Christ. It's true in every church that rejects the authority of Christ. It's true in every government, whether local, state, or national. It is true when it rejects the authority of Christ that chaos and destruction follow. As sinful humanity, we reject authority, all authority. It's what happened in the garden with our first parents. And we continue to prove our kinship with them. My hope is that the passage this morning from Mark's gospel will serve to help us avoid unnecessary chaos and unnecessary destruction in our lives, in our families, in our church, and in our community as we both seek Christ's authority on display And worship and honor him accordingly. Astonishing authority. Let's look now at Mark's gospel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. We'll look at verses 21 through 34. Initially seeing Christ's authority over doctrine. Verses 21 and 22. And then seeing Christ's authority over demons. Verses 23 to 26. And seeing Christ's authority over disease, verses 29 through 31. If you're taking detailed notes, you'll recognize that I skipped 27 and 28 and 32 through 34 because those verses emphasize Christ's authority in what I will eventually call, I think, dual domination. In demons and disease, both are included in those verses. I couldn't decide which point to include it in, so I just made another point. Astonishing authority. Three distinguishing marks of Jesus' ministry found for us here in these few verses. Three distinguishing marks. Authority in his teaching, authority in casting out demons, and authority in healing the sick. Or using the points, astonishing authority of Jesus Christ in doctrine, demons, and disease. Now, many of you have noticed with the amount of times that we have read Mark 1, either in its entirety or a substantial portion of it week after week now, for this is, I think, the fourth week we've looked at it together. Mark 
makes use of this word immediately again and again. It will slack off some as we move out of chapter 1, 11 of the 41 times that it occurs in the book occur in chapter 1, and more than a handful of them are just in this group of verses that we're looking at today. It's probably important for us to realize that every time Mark uses immediately, it doesn't necessarily mean at once. Sometimes it does. It will once in our passage today. But oftentimes it just means next. (laughs) This is what's next in the story that I'm telling. They went into Capernaum, verse 21, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed or astonished at the teaching of Jesus. Jesus was teaching them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. They went to the synagogue. The synagogue in Capernaum was most likely the most was likely the most prominent building in the village. It would have been the largest building. It would have stood out. People would have known where it was. It's interesting to note that throughout the Gospel of Mark, the way that the synagogue is referred to by Mark, or or the context in which he mentions it, we see it here in our passage today, as well as the passage for Next week in verse 39 of chapter 1, that demons are present there. In chapter 3 and chapter 12, we'll see that the synagogue is the place where antagonism exists from religious leaders. In chapter 6, we'll see that the synagogue is the place where there are hearts that are hard to the truths of God. And then chapter 13, we'll see that the synagogue is the place where persecution of true believers happens. May God protect us from having religious institutions and religious organizations and religious places of worship, from having churches as a people and as a place that are characterized in these ways. May God protect us from being described in the way that Mark is forced to describe with honesty and integrity what the synagogues were in the days that Jesus lived, where demons were present where leaders were antagonistic, where hearts were hard, and where persecution of the people of God was present. Jesus went to the synagogue, and he began to teach. And they were amazed. Amazing astonishment. They were all amazed. Look ahead to verse 27. Again, when Jesus casts out the demon, they were all amazed. There's this one primary response to the person of Jesus. It is amazing astonishment at his authority. It's astonishing authority because he has authority over all things. In fact, throughout the entirety of Mark's gospel, 16 different times Mark uses this phrase. Some of your translations will say amazed, some will say astonished, And even in the New American Standard that I'm reading from, it'll be used interchangeably. But it it gives the idea of being panic-stricken, a completely shocked effect, being thunderstruck. 
It came with a powerful punch or a terrifying surprise. That's the result of Jesus showing up on the scene and preaching the truths, teaching the truth about God, accomplishing good works in the name of God. The difference in Jesus, the distinction or differentiation between Jesus and all others in his teaching and his preaching and his living, it demands attention. When we read what Mark says here, we get the idea that the authority that belongs to Christ is palpable. You can sense it in the words that he says and the deeds that he does. He speaks of things that are supremely substantive. Nothing, super, nothing superficial, nothing remotely flippant or light. Mark says, completely unlike the scribes, who were basically Pharisees who possessed secondhand theology. The scribes just repeated what they had heard, repeated what they had seen written. And those who witnessed the preaching and teaching of Jesus recognized him having authority in doctrine. But it didn't stop there. Just then, verse 23, was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. Jesus possesses authority in doctrine, but he also possesses authority among demons. The bright light or authority in the preaching of Jesus was too much for this demonized man to handle. He was exposed. It's what light does to darkness. Creatures that live under stones do not like to be exposed to the light. I feel like I've probably mentioned this before, probably in this setting, and so it'll be old news to many of you. But I remember, like it was yesterday, going to bed each night on my first trip to Ethiopia each night going in, I was wearing a, a, a petzel, a headlamp to get in because, you know, electricity was hard to come by, but I had AAA batteries. So I would go in and pull the covers back on this bed that was about a third the size of a twin-size bed. I was about my same size, <laughs> maybe bigger then. Um, uh, and each time, every night, I would pull it back and just watch the bugs and spiders scurry away. You, know? you say, huh, but like, that's better than them staying there, right? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't that disappointed that they were leaving. <laughs> but it was every night, except on the days that, that we bombed in the room. Like, then they just laid there, so you had to... <laughs> Move them away on those nights. But all that to, to point out that all of us, so not everybody has done that, right? But everybody has turned over a stone and you watch the bugs scurry. I probably just should have stuck with that illustration. The bright light, the astonishing authority of Jesus' teaching was too much for this demonized man. This man with what Mark calls an unclean spirit. So when we hear unclean, we're, we think about hygiene. It has nothing to do with his hygiene. It has everything to do with religious defilement. He was in opposition to God. 
and everything to do with God. He was rejecting the authority of God. Now, passages like this prove problematic for us in the sophisticated West, sophisticated West in which we live. We, we are too often convinced that the powers of evil or demons do not exist, or if they do, they certainly don't interfere with our lives. They're out there somewhere. I say it's problematic because it's just not the way we should approach what the scriptures talk about. How should we then think about the reality of the demonic? Well, on the one hand, we should absolutely avoid obsession with the demonic. We shouldn't go looking for demons everywhere, which is not going to be the case for most of us. Most of us fall into the category of blaming every setback or every disease or every bad day on the devil. This is also an obsession to be avoided. Not only should we avoid an obsession, we should avoid a practical, ah, supernaturalism to the degree that it denies the reality of any dark, demonic forces at work in our world. Can you really look out and see what's happening in our world and say that the demonic is not at work? Not with any kind of honest integrity. We must avoid obsession. We must avoid a practical supernaturalism. We must recognize that Satan and his minions are real. Not only are they real, they're active. And therefore, we must, as a result, take up, as Luke said on Wednesday, the spiritual armor of God and be on the defense against his attacks. Being on the offensive, taking up the spiritual armor in order that we might be defended against the attacks of Satan and his minions. I find it helpful to note here, and the way that we read Mark chapter 1, it's helpful to see that the initial confrontation that Jesus had with Satan in the wilderness, this, this confrontation continues, not just from the wilderness, but as he lives in ordinary life, among ordinary people doing ordinary things, as he ministers among Capernaum, where average Joes live. In the normal circumstances of life, Jesus is still faced with the reality of the demonic, of Satan and his minions, especially in religious circumstances. It was in the synagogue where Jesus faced this man with an unclean spirit. Seemingly no one in the synagogue recognized Jesus for who he was. They're amazed at his teaching. Astonished at his authority. But it's the demon that says, Jesus of Nazareth, Holy One of God. How can this be? 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded them, us, so that they, we, may not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. We don't see him for who he is until he opens our eyes. We can't. This ambassador of hell in the synagogue on this Sabbath in Capernaum is the second recognition offered of Christ and who he is in his fullness. Second only to the father himself who said at Christ's baptism, you are my son. So God the father says you are my son. 
The unclean spirit inside the man says, Jesus of Nazareth, Holy One of God. And he follows that statement with a defiant assertion that he states as a question, have you come to destroy us? He means, he knows exactly why Jesus is there. Jesus has come to destroy them. Destroy us. It's helpful to see this demon, this unclean spirit, knew that Jesus' authority was over the whole of that kingdom, not just this individual unclean spirit, that the whole of that kingdom that's under the dominion of the prince of the power of the air, that Jesus came to destroy all of it. And he would, and he did, and he is. And Jesus responds, verse 25, in rebuke, be quiet and come out of him. Silence, he says, without saying please. Literally, be muzzled. He's dealt with like an ankle-biting, yapping mutt. Sorry if you have one of those, but you understand what they're like. (laughs) Jesus, I'm not really sorry if you have one of those, but (laughs) just to be perfectly clear. Silence, be muzzled. Jesus, who has all authority, would be unquestionably reprimanded by the tone police in our current culture. There is nothing polite about his response to this man, to this demon. There is nothing politically correct in his dealings with him. There's nothing nice about Jesus' interaction. He commanded authoritatively, and the demon obeyed immediately. Throwing him into convulsions, verse 26, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Violent convulsions, inarticulate howling, making one last desperate plea, but the demon departs nonetheless. Astonishing authority. Consider the authority of Christ's call. Back up into verse 17 that we looked at last week. Follow me, Jesus says. Immediately they left their nets and followed. Or verse 20, he called them. They left to follow him. Jesus calls his disciples and they follow. Jesus calls the demon to depart and he flees. Both hear the call that cannot be resisted because of the astonishing authority of our Lord. The call to follow results in following. The call to flee results in fleeing. When Christ calls, he calls with authority, astonishing authority. And it's a call for us. The call for us is a call that provides hope. Hope because the hardest heart on the planet, the most stubborn mind on the planet, face of the earth is not beyond the reach of Christ's call. That heart that seems impenetrable, that soul that appears to be irredeemable, that person that seems to be impossible, 
They are nothing for Christ's authoritative call. When he calls us, we come. We can hear the echoes of the coming cross, a foretaste of the cross, if you will, in Jesus' authority among the demons. It's as if during his life on earth, he is accomplishing small victories along the way. I think last week I called them postcards from the coming kingdom. Maybe I didn't call it that, something like that. Small victories along the way that will eventually culminate in Christ's decisive victory over Satan when his death sets people free from the power of sin and hell, establishing the kingdom of God on earth. That kingdom that is here and now, that is still expanding and advancing as we acknowledge God's right to rule and to reign in all places for all time. The authority of Jesus is astonishing as a display of majesty, but also as a display of the power of redemption for captives, for captives to sin and self. The call of Christ sets us free from that. Astonishing authority in doctrine among demons and thirdly over diseases. News about him spread everywhere, verse 28, into all the surrounding district of Galilee, and immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon Andrew with James and John. So following Sabbath worship, they make their way down the road for lunch. Some things never change. But lunch on this Sabbath is unprepared due to Peter's mother-in-law being incapacitated with a fever. Now, Mark wasn't there. Does anybody know how Mark would have known this? His good buddy Peter told him. They were ministry partners. In fact, lots of people say that most of Mark's gospel came as firsthand evidence from Peter. So we can understand why Peter's giving these details. It's in his house. It's close to his home. It's in his family. They get there and find out Verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. Immediately, they spoke to Jesus about her. Such a helpful pattern. Immediately, they spoke to Jesus about her. When, When we hear of something difficult, something unexpected, what's the first thing we do? Where do we run? Who do we tell? Immediately, they spoke to Jesus about her. John Newton's familiar hymn, Come my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. They were convinced of that. This, is, this man with astonishing authority, what is this to him? Let's go tell him about the issue that we have. Now, means that God has provided should definitely be taken advantage of. I'm not suggesting that whatever issues you're facing in life, only tell Jesus about them. Doctors should be sought out. Lawyers should be consulted. Expert advice should be considered. Friends should be depended on. But none of the means that God has provided should replace the remedy of the all-sufficient Christ. None can relieve like he can. None has compassion like he does. None are willing to help as he is. 
speaking specifically of the ailment here, the physical ailment in the text, there's not an illness nor a condition that Christ cannot handle and handle authoritatively. What we see happening between Jesus and Peter's mother-in-law, as we keep reading there, immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. Then verse 31, Jesus came to her, raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her. What we see happening between Jesus and Peter's mother-in-law is what Jesus desires for each one of us. He offers every one of us a touch of his grace to our sin-sick hearts and lives. His touch is a balm to our wearied souls. I don't know that we've sung this hymn here, but it's very familiar to me, I'm assuming because of the church context that I grew up in. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. I must tell Jesus, I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, the hymn writer exclaims. Jesus can help me, Jesus alone. And he continues, I must tell Jesus all of my troubles. He is a kind, compassionate friend. If I but ask him, he will deliver, make of my troubles quickly an end. Tempted and tried, I need a great savior. One who can help my burdens to bear. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. He all my cares and sorrows will share. Oh, how the world to evil allures me. Oh, how my heart is tempted to sin. I must tell Jesus. And he will help me. Over the world, the victory to win. I must tell Jesus. I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus. Jesus can help me. Jesus alone. They were convinced. Immediately, they spoke to Jesus about her. And Jesus came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her. And this is such a mild and sanitized translation, the fever left her. It didn't just casually find an exit. Literally, The fever forsook her. Jesus comes, commands, and it got out of Dodge, leaving her all alone. Verse 31, and she waited on them. Upon being healed by Christ, she served Christ and his people. And so that we aren't confused about this service being menial in some fashion or somehow assuming that Simon and Andrew and James and John, along with Jesus, just needed her better so that she could make lunch, this service, this waiting on them, is the exact phrase of the angels in chapter 1 verse 13. Yeah, angels were ministering to him. Exact same thing. Angels were ministering to Jesus. Peter's mother-in-law is healed and she begins ministering, serving, waiting on Jesus and Peter, James, John, and Andrew. 
Not only is it the same phrase there, it's the same phrase in Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. She was saved and began serving like Jesus. This is true. This, this reality is true for all who receive the healing touch of Christ. Here's Christ in a home of a family. He's not healing for the acclaim of the crowds, but because of his love for his people. His authority is on display in Peter's house through compassion and pity and empathy by healing. I find a wonderful truth here, encouraging that Christ doesn't heal halfway. Most of us have had a fever. If you've ever had a high fever, you know that the fever, once the fever drops, there are symptoms left over, like lingering weakness and others. I had malaria, which comes with fevers, which I don't recommend. Malaria, that is. Fevers are fine because they're attacking an infection. They're miserable, but they're there for a reason. Malaria was, was the problem more than the fever, but the fevers would get so high, and then they would drop and break, but for nearly 24 hours after the fever would break, the best way I knew to describe it was I feel like I've been run over by a truck. Now, Peter's mother-in-law is incapacitated by a fever. We don't know the cause of the fever. It doesn't matter. What we know is that Christ healed her of the cause of the fever, the fever, and the symptoms and lingering effects of the fever. He doesn't heal halfway. He heals fully and completely, so much so that she was waiting on them, not suffering through out of a begrudging gratefulness that she felt obliged to do, but she was made completely well. She was made strong. She was made willing and able to serve. The cure was complete. And again, just like in the casting out of the unclean spirit, there were echoes of the coming cross. There's, there's a foretaste of it here as well in Christ's authority over disease. Not only does God provide mercy and forgiveness for us as sinners, but he gives us renewing grace as well accomplishing everything in us in order that we might live for him and do his goodwill. This is the way that the Bible says it. Those whom he justifies, he also sanctifies. Every justified person will be glorified. And every justified person will be sanctified. We don't go from justification to glorification. Glorification is as good as done when we're justified because that's the way God works, but he guarantees that we will be sanctified, and he gives us the necessary grace along the way. He absolves our sin on the one hand, and he grants us the power and rights to become sons of God. God doesn't merely cure our sin-sick heart or soul, but he replaces it with a brand new one that is happy to do his will. And accomplish his good pleasure. Christ knows nothing of half-saved sinners. Or half-cured people. Or half-completed works of grace. 
He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. No one experiences pardon without the privilege of serving. We're saved to serve. So there's a foretaste of the cross and there's a foretaste of the final restoration even here of all creation. Christ came to establish his authority in every area. We see that in two particular areas here. Dual, in the dual dominance of disease and demon possession. Picking up in verse 32. When the evening came. So the shadows are lengthening on this Sabbath day. And the diseased and the demon-possessed come knocking at the door. Verse 33 actually says the whole city had gathered at the door. So the compassion that Jesus shows to Peter's mother-in-law, to an individual, is also shown towards the masses. Jesus healed the diseased and he cast out the demons. He healed many, verse 34, who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. Now, that doesn't mean that some were refused and he sent some home sick and still possessed. Many insinuates all. It's, it's an inclusive use of the term rather than an exclusive use of the term. We see that elsewhere in the New Testament as well. What's interesting to note, and we will continue to see this coming up, is Jesus's, or the statement here from Mark, he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Jesus was preventing, we might call it the messianic secret. He was preventing his name and his mission from needlessly spreading. Yet, it wasn't time. He was avoiding premature or misdirected popularity. There was a lot of misunderstanding around him and why he had come, even among those who were close to him, which we'll see throughout the gospel according to Mark as we continue to walk through it. But the phrase in verse 24, I know who you are, stated by the man with the unclean spirit, And then in verse 34, they knew who he was. Knowing Christ is wonderful. It's everything. But knowing his name doesn't amount to salvation. Acknowledging his fame doesn't amount to salvation. Nodding to true facts about him does not equal salvation. Quoting truths regarding him is not tantamount to salvation. None of these, knowing, acknowledging, nodding, quoting, amount to salvation in him, by him, and for him. We must know and love him. We must come to him, turning from our sin. And trusting in him and his grace. We must be astonished by his authority. 
which will result in us responding to his authority by obeying him. It is the only way to prevent chaos and destruction in our lives as individuals, as a church, as a community, as a nation. We must be astonished by his authority, which if we stand back and ask God to help and see who this man is, as recorded on the pages of his word, we will realize he is worthy to be worshipped. We owe him everything. He is our king. Let's worship him as such. Let's obey him, demonstrating our love for him by seeking to do his goodwill, accomplishing his pleasure in all things, being astonished in an ever-increasing fashion, being astonished by his authority, not in this area or that area, but his ultimate authority over all all things. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word, for providing it to us, preserving it for us. God, we pray that you will take the truth that is contained regarding your Son, recorded in your Word, and press it deep into our souls, that it might come forth in our lives, in our speech, in our thoughts, as individuals, as families, as a church. God, you have set your Son on the throne. You have given him all authority in heaven and on earth. It belongs to him. Help us, God, to see it, to know it, to love it, to see him and know him and love him and worship you and worship him. God, help us by your spirit for the sake of your son, for the glory of your name, and for the good of us, your people, we pray. Amen.